So 1 Corinthians one twenty six through 31. So the word of God says, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were men, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What an amazing sermon Pastor Jeff gave on Sunday. It's arguably one of the best sermons that I've heard in the longest time, expositorial-wise. The fact of him declaring to us what needs to be said time and time and again, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, as Joshua says. Loaded with so many implications, so many applications. I was tempted to ask Pastor Jeff if I could play his sermon tonight and just let his you know, expository preaching do all the preaching for you guys tonight. But I thought of even something better is using this passage in First Corinthians to even edify the body even more so by digging into the word of God exactly where we can focus on sanctification and exactly what sanctification means. But first, by digging in today, focusing on what Pastor Jeff was saying about revival. Well, how does revival come about? I'm going to use a military term here that you hear all the time in staff meetings, and it's going to be to piggyback on what Jeff was talking about here. So cultural background in 1 Corinthians is Paul is the author of 1 and 2 Corinthians. He did not write both epistles until his third missionary journey in Ephesus around 50 AD when he visited. You can find this in 1 Corinthians 15.32. And it was in Paul's second missionary journey when he visited Athens, spending his second longest tenure of any missionary city, 18 months, and during the term of proconsul. He was sent to preach not only to the Greeks, not only to the barbarians, but also to the wise, professed, and to the foolish, as we see in Romans 1.14. That was his purpose of going on these journeys. The city was a significant seaport like Ephesus, and with the seaports, there was a lot of immorality. The church tended to return to the immoral way of living in Corinth, which Paul warns them against taking part with the rest of the world. We find this in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And the Ephesians, ironically, were also warned in re-engaging in past immorality, as we see in Ephesians 2. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2 regarding this when he says that, But now in Christ Jesus you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Corinth, indeed, was famous city for tourists. They had a theater, an odeum, which is a small theater, and even places to bathe. They had their own baths. However, the tourists did not come just to bathe and watch theater. The city was visited by pilgrims every two years for the Isthmian Games, one of the four central Panhelic Games that which were honored Poseidon, which was a god of sea, Greek mythology. They were polytheistic, the worship of multiple gods, namely Greek, shrines, temples, and imperial cults, temples that honored Roman emperors and were seen as divine 
once dead. Major populace were Romans who controlled the city since Julius Caesar at around 146 BC, Greeks and a large Jewish community. It's a whole plethora of. He began his ministry by preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. However, opposition began to arise until the point of when God told him in a vision to not remain silent. In Acts 18. So the beginning verses of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians are an exhortation and thanksgiving to the Corinthians. Greek philosophy was becoming more intrusive into the church where, God, where Greek wisdom was theoretically based on the value of man existence. Paul challenges the notion of man's wisdom unmatched and demolished by God from verses 18 through 20. Scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus to show them a sign as if it was going to turn their hypocritical hearts on to God. We read this in Matthew 12. While Greeks spend wasted time in debate, both veer from the necessity of true wisdom, godly wisdom that calls for the believer to submit to God and his will. And then from verses 26 through 29 that we just read, God did not choose among his elect to be the wise the noble and strong, to stand on the biggest stages as if we were knights in shining armor. He chose the foolish, those who lack wisdom, those who were not noble, those who are weak. He chose people like me. He chose people like you. God does not need the selfism type that Pastor Jeff was talking about on Sunday. He doesn't need anyone. God is self-sufficient. And by his, Christ's doing, the bottom of the barrels are called to put the worldly wisdom and its people to shame. Men and women, no account. Praise God for his mercy. Now our main points today, there's going to be two main points that we're going to go over. The first one is wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. Both of these are going to be tying in on verse 30 with a little bit of verse 31 to the very end as we conclude today's message. The second main point is going to be sanctification from God. So we have the first point of wisdom from God and the second point of sanctification from God. So beginning with the first point, wisdom from God, what exactly is wisdom? You may count when Yahweh visited a king in Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7, where he said, Ask what I should give you. Now man's heart, indeed a king's as you would expect, would have asked for the most splendor of riches, fame, and glory. That's exactly what kings in ancient civilizations look for. They look for power. They look to rule. But not this king. Instead, this king, King Solomon, asked Yahweh in verse 10 to give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, speaking of the Israelites. For who can do justice for this great people of yours, by which God responded, responded, because you had this in your heart and did not ask for riches, wealth, or glory, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you asked for the long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may do justice for my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge been given to you. We read in Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Then we read in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 3-4, through 4, By wisdom a house is built, 
and by discernment it is firmly established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with precious and pleasant riches. Godly wisdom stems from God and is not the wisdom that the world search for through philosophy, science, whatever type of outside resources, friends, neighbors, anything outside of God. You can turn over every single rock. Knowledge, godly knowledge, godly wisdom to serve and abide by his will is by his revelation. And that's by him drawing us near, drawing us to his revelation. So let's focus on by his doing. Verse 31 or verse 30 here says, But by his doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So when we look at by his doing, I love what one commentator just strictly points out, plain and simple, is it's saying that by his doing, by just starting this, the conjunction of but is just pointing us to God being the author of salvation. We read this and we see that by his doing... We don't see that personal pronoun of talking about you until the following word. But by his doing, you are in Christ. God is the author of salvation. Salvation is not dependent on any of our own merit. But by Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. And it's all for his glory alone. We talked about earlier that God is just self-sufficient. There's nothing that we can do to add, take away, earn our way into salvation. It is all by his grace. His wisdom is our inheritance. The result, a life reconciled back to God and a position of right standing with him. In this case, Paul's usage of the noun wisdom is strictly speaking of salvation. When we read this in the New Testament, we read that wisdom from God, it is strictly talking about in Christ where salvation is found. So what does that mean for wisdom for the believer? Well, to have wisdom appropriated to us is to be righteous. Righteous means to be right standing with God. Means to be sanctified. To be set apart and growing more and more like Christ and being set apart as holy. And one thing we must recognize that the Holy Spirit is not temporary. Nor does one have the basis of having the Spirit by just focusing upon a feeling. The Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being reconciled with God, then dwelling in the Spirit has nothing to do whatsoever with feelings. We see this in the modern age culture of too many Christians within churches, even behind the pulpits, of saying that you can feel the Spirit or I feel God in this presence. It has nothing to do with that. The Spirit is constantly indwelling in each believer, sealing them in Christ's righteousness as we read in Ephesians 1.13. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, spoke of a congregant within the church who was committing an immoral act. One so egregious where he says that not even the Gentiles would commit such a type of sin within themselves. Yet Paul states that he is not to be that he is to be tossed out into the world and so that his spirit would be saved when the Lord is to judge. Insinuating that though such an act should never be done within any member, 
within the church, any member of Christ, that being sealed, if the Spirit, or if He truly is bought by Christ, that despite our sin, just as Christ died for every believer's sin, despite of being enemies of God, when you are sealed, you are sealed and sanctified with the Spirit. There's nothing that you can do to take that apart. Then we read that, and to be redeemed, saved from sin's lawlessness, and held in bondage to. Now this isn't to become free of ourselves, to go off and live however we want, just like the world is doing, but free from the captivity of yoke of sin, and to become slaves no longer to sin, but slaves to Christ's righteousness. I love what John MacArthur once said regarding righteousness and abiding by the will of God, where he says that after so long that you follow the will of God, eventually you're going to be able to live exactly how you want, because it's all going to be for the will of God. Paul speaks so visibly in Romans 8.23, where he refers to redemption as the adoptions of sons. Meaning that Christ has redeemed us from the captivity of sin and not just the wages of sin, like we read in Romans 3.23. Ray Comfort does such a great job, love watching his street evangelism, in which he talks about a toll or a price or a fee that is due above our heads being enemies of God. And only Christ can pay for that. It's an easy way to explain this. But what Paul is strictly talking about in here, it's not just a type of violation causing wages of currency. This is the yoke that sin has in our life, that firm grip of, temp- of Satan's grip regarding sin that we're in bondage to. But Christ releases us from that grip and sets us into his righteousness and enters into his rest. God is the originator of wisdom, which in turn dwells in Jesus Christ, which in contrast of wisdom is foolishness. So apart from knowing God through special revelation, it is not having any wisdom at all. Therefore, rejecting God is strictly foolishness. That when the Bible talks about being fools, strictly those who reject God, what no part anything to do. So moving from wisdom to God, talking about the sanctification, what it leads to. Now we'll go on to the second point, sanctification from God. And ask the questions of what is sanctification? Sanctification means to be set apart, to be set apart as holy, to be set into Christ's righteousness, to set apart and to live and abide by his will. We're taking the sinner in his or her position and then God's grace taking his elect, choosing them before the foundations of the earth. We read that in Ephesians 1.4. And it's the commencing of the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of the sinner to progressively transform the sinner into Christ as a result of justification where Christ's righteousness is imputed from his account to ours. Not to say that the sinner will no longer sin, but the Christian is inwardly and outwardly being transformed in every aspect of life to reflect Christ's righteousness. The working out 
of one's salvation. It's the best way to put sanctification. That is the working out where we to be the light of the hill, the salt of the earth. It is the working out where people thirst for righteousness, where people recognize that when they view us in our work centers, within the homes, everything about our demeanor should reflect Christ in the way of our living. We know that there will still be sin in our lives. We know that it's the battle, both the heavenly and the flesh, the world. We see Jesus in John thirteen ten, where he says that Jesus describes in metaphor that the sinner who has been washed by the blood of Christ, but not made perfect yet, that the unregenerated sinner is still in bondage to sin, but no longer held captive. The believer has been freed. But those who do not put their trust in Christ are still in that bondage. If you recall, last time when I was preaching on Ephesians 2 and talking about that heavenly citizenship of being bought by Christ, Christ as a cornerstone, and to always direct and focus our attention to Christ as a cornerstone. Where... This sanctification is working our way towards that heavenly citizen where we're already part of that sovereign plan by God, chosen before the foundations of the earth. The only difference is, is that now we're set in the world, but we're strangers to this world, no longer living as the world does. But we are set apart as holy, working and looking for that day of Jesus Christ. That is what we long for. This is just temporary. The whole purpose of sanctification is to set us apart, reflect Christ, and the working of inwardly and outwardly aspect of being bought in his righteousness. The Lexham Survey of Theology exceptionally explains sanctification to be the ongoing supernatural work of God to rescue justified sinners from the disease of sin and to conform them to the image of his Son. Holy, Christ-like, and empowered to do good works. And unequivocally, I think that there is no better of choice that they could have used than the disease of sin. To describe sin as a disease. Because back in 2020, we can all agree that we all got pretty accustomed to the word of virus, diseases, all types of things that were separating families trying to stop worship services. What we realized, all the propaganda that was being sent out, scaring everyone to stay within their homes. The list goes on exactly what disease is. Where disease disrupts the normal functioning of our bodies. However, greater than any type of disease is the disease of sin. It's what affects not only our mortal bodies, but sin is a transgression against a holy God. And any transgression and sin against a holy God and his moral perfectness is an eternal punishment. That there's nothing that we can do in this lifetime that can ever take that away other than to be bought by the blood of Christ. That's why we must look at verse 30 here when we see that, but by his doing, but by Christ's doing, that should give us hope. You are in Christ. 
but by do- his doing, you are in Christ Christian. Sanctification is the growth necessary to live for the will of God. It is the fruit of salvation. Salvation is the work of the Trinity. It is the Father who draws the sinner to him by special revelation. It is Christ who redeems and it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. It is the complete working of the Trinity. Some implications of sanctification, where we know that sanctification is a work in the Holy Spirit that allows the Christian to be responsible for these types of three implications. The first one that we're responsible for is faith. Faith is an exchange of trust with God. When we hear that we have faith in his word, faith in that is given by God, but it is our faith that we read his word, we trust what his word says, and we long for his promises. The second one is obedience. good way to describe obedience is the mission and commission of abiding by God's will, which ultimately entails dying to ourself. Dying to self is the best way you can even think about imagery-wise, is if you think of Christ, and he was talking about the ramifications of being Christ's disciple, where he said that you must pick up your cross and follow me in order to be my disciple. That means that no matter what we do, from the time that we wake up to the time of slumber, it is all about dying to ourselves and being obedient by following the will of God. So we have faith, obedience, And the third and final one is submission. We're knowing God's word and the will and surrender to follow it. My wife made a great point when we were talking about this whole sermon outline. But asking, is there really a difference between obedient and submissive? She made a great point. She said that as a wife... I may be obedient, but that doesn't always mean that I'm submissive. So for these two types of differences, there is the difference where our heart is that surrendering of dying to ourself in order to follow Christ. And obedience is following and abiding to what his word says. Now, when it comes to sanctification, sanctification is the fruit of our salvation to be set apart. And before... Or during that whole process of sanctification comes the whole process of regeneration. Where in John 3, when we read of the baptizing of the believer, that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, saying that you must be born again. The washing of the believer. So it is necessary to be reborn to receive the free gift of eternal life. Some misconceptions of regeneration. This regeneration is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that makes a Christian a new believer in union with Christ. It's exactly what it means. That is, they're taking the sinner and renewing them so that they are conformed to the image of God that has been skewed by sin. So we see that man was made in God's image in the very beginning. And I highly recommend listening to uh, Brother Randy's message on Genesis 3.15 on the garden and the whole concept of the fall. Where sanctification is renewing that godly image 
that was skewed because of sin. And when God had a cursed land and then Adam now as a representative, we were now born with his sin imputed upon each and every one of us. Sanctification releases us from that trap where we know that us as Christians, we know that we still sin. But it's sanctification that sets us free in order to live, provide that fruit, and being obedient and submissive by faith to God's will. Now, someone might say that I cannot live like Christ, for he is perfect, by which is a correct understanding of Christ's holiness and divinity. And is also a correct understanding if you think that you can ever live like Christ by just a matter of mere flesh and by your own strength. There's no hope in that sense to live like Christ. But as we read again in verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ. The dwelling of his spirit, you have been set apart as holy. And when we think of some applications of sanctification, applications would include prayer. Prayer would be the confessings of sin together, inclusive, the fellowship of the saints together. Because we must remember that the battle of spiritual warfare isn't fought with any type of earthly weapon that we can yield, any type of sword whatsoever. The battle begins on our knees. Another application to sanctification is meditation and reading of the word. Psalm 19, 115. I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Another application is fellowship with the saints and the church. 1 John 1, 6 through 7 says that if we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. One of the books that I had to read so far in school was Recovering the Real Lost Gospel. Because I've heard from pastors of asking congregations, asking them exactly what is the gospel. You wouldn't believe going to even the Baptist church asking what their answer is and all he gives It's just a blank stare. Or we can hear the gospel every single day. But what exactly is the gospel? Or we know that when we read in Corinthians that Jesus Christ lived that sinless life, was crucified, buried, and rose again. And that by his doing, by the sending of the helper, we've been sanctified in that matter. So not only are we reconciled back to God, with the message of the gospel, but we're also reconciled with the people of God. So there is that reconciliation where we're no longer enemies with God, but we're also reconciled with the people to be able to have that common denominator of fellowship with one another. Something that was completely skewed because of sin, where you can see the selfism. It's all about me, myself, and I out in the world. But when it comes to the body of Christ and the edification together, it is the body moving together 
separate parts with separate gifts, all for the same purpose to bring God the glory. And getting into that, we see that the utilizing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this is both personally and corporately. And our responsibility for evangelism, teaching, whatever may be for the gifts of the Spirit, we are to utilize those. And then lastly, is dying to self. This would be an application. That Christ's call for those who love them. Spending almost nine years in the Air Force, I'm pretty aware of what submissiveness is. Being told what to do and having to do it, blink of an eye, not even necessarily having to think about it. But what takes more precedence than my submission to the chain of command is my submission to Christ. Those who love Christ. That's why we read in the Gospel of John, when Jesus asked several times, or said and stated, that if you love me, you will abide my word. If you love me, if you love me, if you love me, several times over. The true mark of the believer is those who truly love Christ die to themselves and answer to his call. And so at that, the fruit of holy living, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 8, that we are not rewarded on the result of how many souls we win to Christ, but the strenuous labor by which we are faithful to God with the service of that evangelism. It's easy to fall into the trap of the results. But as we read, what Paul says is that if one of us is to water, one of us is to plant, it is always God that determines and causes the growth. We can't get caught on the whole end game and look for the results and think that that has anything to do with our holiness or our stature with God. It's all the process of becoming more and more holy in our time of being set apart in Christ. It is crucial to remember that God causes the growth, which means that he receives the glory. And if I may encourage you, we do not always see the results of our labor, but we will all rejoice in our award. And so in verse 31 here, when we read, So that, just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love the part of this verse because of the term boast. As a new believer, one of the first verses that I caused myself and focused on heavily to memorize was Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And we read in there that no man ought to boast when it comes to our salvation. That it is a gift from God and by faith, not of our own doing, but all by the work of God. And let no man boast. We're all doxology, doxology of praise and connection of our salvation is not by our own means of merit but all because of Christ. He is all deserving 
of the boasting. The Christian is a sinner yet set apart. And but by our doing, never. But by his doing. And that, brethren, is a definition of impossible made possible. Because of Christ. And so we wrap up here in our conclusion and get ready to pray. One of the things that concluding give four areas of topic here. Things that we can praise God for when we pray later on. Is that God's wisdom will never cease. God's wisdom will never cease. Our salvation is never lost. We are sealed in his righteousness. A second is his righteousness is permanent. His righteousness must be permanent in order for us to have that trust and faith that we are sealed in him. And that is exactly why it is, because he is permanently righteous. And but by his doing, number three, our sanctification is continuous. That our growth, when I was being discipled as a young believer in California, my mentor, mature believer at the time, said that the growth of the Christian, if you were to look at a graph, it's going to look like this, up and down. The whole way through. But if you look from start to finish, it's always going to be an upwards trajectory. Our sanctification is continuous. Number four, our redemption was paid in full. That we were redeemed. We are redeemed. And in doing so, we dwell in his righteousness and therefore being sanctified. So I mentioned about piggybacking on Pastor Jeff's message on Sunday, which, you know, it's imperative and extremely important, especially when he says not to just listen, not to just have the Bibles open, but to actually take the notes and to review them. He's absolutely right when he says that we are in need of a revival. Christians are constantly perfected into God's son's image because of his righteousness. And we ought to do, as Paul says in Titus 2, be people of his possession who are zealous for good works. That revival, that definition of a revival is that excitement, that fire, and that zeal to serve Christ, starting from not within the work center, not within church, within these walls, but at home. The revival always begins at home. The elder, the pastor, has no glorifying ministry if their homes aren't in order. If they don't see that their dad is properly serving Christ. The office worker, construction worker, teacher, trainer like myself, boss, student, stay-at-home mother, street evangelist, all have no ministry if Christ does not dwell within you richly, to which you do not put your faith into God's word, submit to his lordship and obey his commands for his people. Faith, submission, and obedience marks that true believer. And to do as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says that no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. 
Our hearts and minds must be always renewed to think of Christ and to each sin that we commit should draw our attentions to the cross. That when you do sin, do not dwell within that time period, but allow that cross to smack you in the face, get on your knees, repent, and then slowly work towards your obedience and sanctification, resting in his grace. Satan no longer has a hold of you with his grip. Only unless you continuously pursue worldly desires, which would show that there is no lightness within you to begin with. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ and repent. Where John says that if we are to sin and say that we have no sin, that we ourselves are a liar. Don't deceive yourself. The only way of salvation is to trust in God and to repent. It's a reminder for me for every day that I fall short to remind myself of God's word in John 1, 9, that where he says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. So with these final words, before we end here in prayer, is Christians, press on, fight the good fight of faith, of holy living, and remember, no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Let us pray.